I read an article probably about a week ago, shifting gears, right, in the message time. Announcement's done, message, here we go. Uh, I read an article about a, a week ago that said, <laughs> said that Legos, investing in uh, collectible Lego sets is more, yields a better return year after year than investing in stocks or in gold. 11%, you can get just buying collectible Lego sets, right? Now, we have tons of Lego sets. None of them are complete. They're worth nothing right now. They're just in a bin. My family, we loved playing with Legos when they were little. They still love playing with Legos now. Right? It's creative. You know, there's a lot of imagination. It's wonderful. We love Legos. Legos are great. But you want to know what's not so great about Legos? Cleaning them up because those little boogers get absolutely everywhere, right? And the reason you want to clean them up is because, let's say you're, you know, you're walking down the hallway in the middle of the night and you don't have shoes on and it's dark. Nothing will cause you to lose your sanctification like stepping on a Lego in the middle of the night. I've seen hydraulic presses exert like 10,000 pounds and not crush a Lego. They're so strong they will impale your foot. So for me... When my kids were little, and even now, because they still play with them, I was like, you got to put those things away. you got to put them away. Please put the Legos away. When you're done with them, put them away, right? Just constantly reminding them of that. And there was a temptation as I engaged with them in that, because when they were little, I'm looking at these Legos on the floor, and I'm thinking, I could put those away in 13 seconds flat. It'll take them two snack breaks and three episodes of Blue's Clues to get those things cleaned up, right? Uh, and, and so there's this uh, temptation, like, uh, you guys need to clean this up, right? You need to clean this up. But if I step in and do it, it'll be done like that. But we're adults, right? And we know what's going to happen if we don't, like, if, if we clean up for our kids all the time. They're never going to learn how to do it themselves, right? And so I start running these scenarios in my head like okay they'll never learn how to clean up for themselves and then someday they'll get married and they won't clean up for themselves then and their spouse will be like I'm done with you and you get divorced and then I never have grandkids all because I never told them and taught them how to put away their Legos we have times when we're tempted like that to take things into our own hands right where we want control of stuff we know that there's a way that something's supposed to go, a way a timing when it's supposed to happen, and, and we take it into our hands. Instead of letting them do what they're supposed to do, I just do it. I, I, it's easier for me to do it than it is to wait on the process. We love to do that with our lives, don't we? We love to be in control of our domain, our time. Now, that's just a silly, small example, but honestly, I could find a bunch of other spaces in my life where I do that same thing. Do it all the time. But where we really get into trouble is when we do that with God. We like to pray and we say, God, you know, what do you want from me? What's your will for my life? And what's your timing for my life? And every once in a while, you know, God will give us some clarity. And he's like, hey, you need to wait on this. And we're like, I don't like to wait. Why do I have to wait? Why wait when I can just, you know, help God out a little bit? After all, he's so busy, so whatever it is that, you know, I, I'm asking for, let me just help God out a little bit. I'll get things started on my own, and that's what we love to do. We love to be in charge. We love to take matters into our own hands when God calls us to do something. Now, we're in a series called Flawed, and it's about a chapter in the, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. 
It's our second week. And what it is, is it's a list of people. Think of it like many people call it the hall of faith. A list of individuals who God looked at them and said, these were individuals who had faith as they processed through life. He commended them for their faithfulness. And there's these people, as we would look at them, and, and, and God says, without faith, it's impossible to please God impossible to please God and these people had it and yet when you start to look at their lives and you really start kind of doing like a zoom in on that thing what you start to see is that they are actually have some deep-seated character flaws we see this all throughout scripture actually when you stop to read critically God's word you don't see perfect people with no problems in their lives, perfect people who never had to deal with division in their home, perfect people who never had to deal with resources that didn't match with their, their, their expectations. They were real people, and they had real flaws. God doesn't excuse their flaws. God doesn't excuse their sins. But he still works through them in their brokenness to bring himself glory and that's so amazing to me. That's so encouraging to me because I, like, I've got lots of flaws. You just have to spend time with me for more than 60 seconds and you'll see them. And that means that just like God can work through their brokenness, God can work in my brokenness too. And he can work in your brokenness as well. He uses flawed people. And he doesn't, God doesn't commend them because you know, everything in their life turned out perfectly. They didn't. It didn't at all. We talked about that last week. They're not called great because their life turned out well. They're called great because they had faith. It was interesting. There's one uh, commentator that was really trying to wrap their brain around faith. And I said this last week, but I just feel sometimes so feeble to preach what, what's up on here. Because it's, how do you preach about what faith is? It's such this huge thing. You know, I feel feeble. I, I heard like an hour and a half uh, I think it was J.I. Packer giving an hour-and-a-half lecture on the details of what faith is, and he boiled it down to this. Faith is, and it's like an, an initialism here, forsaking all, I take him. And just like processing what all of that means, forsaking all, I take him. And does it mean that it always turns out perfectly or that you nail it every single time? No, it doesn't. But another commentator said that it's, it's believing loyalty. It's believing loyalty. And loyalty doesn't always mean that as I interact with someone that, you know what, I'm never going to get it wrong, but it means I keep returning back to. And that's what we see with these, these folks. So have you figured out who this is? This morning we're going to talk about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture. We're going to first look at Hebrews 11 and then Genesis 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to this man. His name is Abram. He lives in this ancient time in an ancient place in Mesopotamia. And his, he lived in a place called Ur. He didn't necessarily have like a, a great knowledge of Jehovah God before this. But God shows up and he, God says to this person, Abram, he says, I'm going to make you a promise and I'm going to give you a people and I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to give you a people and a place. And guess what? That place is far away. So you're going to leave where you are and you're going to go to this place, this promised land for you, and I'm going to give you a people. You don't have any kids, but I'm going to give you a great nation and it's going to come through you. God promised him an inheritance. Now, it's interesting when we read scripture because so often, you know, and probably would see this in 
uh, the ladies as they're studying Hosea or any of the prophets, Genesis, all those Old Testament books, they'll talk a lot about like offspring and inheritance. But it's important to understand culturally really what's happening there because in our culture, yeah, we love our kids. We want kids. That's great. But for them, their kids was actually their social security program. That was their, their legacy, their lineage. It was their tribe. It was who they are. And what I mean by that is, you know, like when we die, our inheritance, well, government eats up part of that, you know. And so there's really very little to pass on to your kids for most of us, right? That's kind of normal for how that happens. For them, what they, their social security program was having lots of children because when they had lots of children, those children would take care of them. It would kind of build a name for them. So when you didn't have kids, it means that you were staring down a future of being old and decrepit, potentially alone, without a lot of resources. The more kids you had, the more they could go and you know, deal with the flocks, gather the grain, bring resources in, really resource the family. It was security for them. And it was their lineage, and it was their tribe. And so God says to Abram, I'm going to give you a great inheritance that he would be a great nation. And what we're going to see by the end of the day is that God actually delivers on that. But Abram, Abram and Sarah, they had some problems. They had some significant problems. But what we see in Hebrews 11 is, man, they're actually commended for their great faith. All the results that came from all of that. But when we, when we look deeper into how they process some challenges in their life, we actually start to see some cracks. This morning, what I want to do is I want to compare these two statements, kind of like Hebrews 11 is what they're commended for, and then let's zoom in on what actually happened. And I want to look <coughs> deeper into the depths, and we're going to step into chapter 21 as well a little later in the story, and we're going to try to figure out, in light of these stories, why does God call them great? Why does he commend them for their faith? So what I'd, what I'd like you to do is let's stand together. I'm going to read through these. Let's honor God's word as, as we hear from that in Hebrews 11. This is page 823 in your orange Bibles. I'm going to read from it. Let's honor God's word. Here it is in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 12. By faith, Abraham, when he called, uh, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, <laughs> came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Man, that sounds great. Wouldn't we all love to have that be spoken about us but God says some other things in Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 6. Take, take a listen to this. This is page 10 in the Orange Bibles. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. 
I put my slave in your arms, and now, as she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. That's the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. And that's kind of what we see depicted here. There's Abram, there's Sarai, there's Hagar. We're going to learn his name in just a little bit. All from the mind of Chris Palmer. All glorious and wonderful. Come back next week because we're going to have another one for the story taking place then too. But what's fascinating is what actually happens right before Genesis 16. In Genesis 15, there's this mountaintop experience because God comes to Abraham and he makes a promise to him once again. Abram's kind of struggling out to figure out kind of like, how's this offspring thing going to work? I'm really old. I don't have kids. So you know what? You know what I can do is like, I need a tribe. So I'll take one of my nephew's sons and, and he can be my heir. And, and you know, God will do it that way. And God says, no, 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 no. Abram, listen, listen, I told you. This is going to come through you. It's not going to be from your nephew. And then God, almost in this time of great mercy, revelation, this unbelievable scene unfolds. God enters into a covenant with Abraham. It's a little different than a contract. It's deeper, more meaningful. Enters into a covenant with Abraham according to the customs of the day. And the customs of the day is if you want to enter into a covenant with someone, the both of you would go through a bit of a ceremony. And in the ceremony, you'd have a pathway. And you would take an animal, maybe a sheep or a goat or whatever, and they would butcher this animal. And they would take the, like, this is a little gross, but parts of the animal, put it on one side of the path and on the other side of the path. And then you would both walk walk through these ha- this halved animal and you would affirm your covenant to the other person and you were functionally saying, listen, I'm really serious about this. May, may it be to me just as it's been to these animals if I don't fulfill my promise. And then what happens is God takes Abram and he puts a deep sleep over him. It's like late at night. There's like, like pots, and they've got fire coming out of them. And, 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 and Abram had taken this animal and halved it. God puts him in a deep sleep. And what, this is so fascinating. What God does is God, leaving Abram there, he alone walks through the center of these animals. And what he's functionally saying is, listen, may it be done to me as it's been done to these animals. If I'm not faithful with my promise to you, I will make you a great nation. You will have a promised land. Abram has just witnessed this. this is, it's just one of the most amazing scenes in Scripture. I'm your shield, your very great reward, God says. He makes this promise, this magnificent, glorious moment of God not just really like promising something, but God like really doubling down. He had already promised him before. He's promising him again. It's amazing. And right after that, right after that, in chapter 16, this is what unfolds. <laughs> this great moment. It's faithlessness. God seals this deal with like this like unbelievable image of, of his, his intentions with, with Abraham and his promises. And then the very next sequence, right when you would hope to see trust, abiding trust, perseverance, what we see is faithlessness. And expediency and disobedience. Which, by the way, why does that happen in our lives too? Like, we'll cry out to God. God, just 
you know, heal this person. God, just help my rickety car make it across the state. God, just help me pass this exam. And then, like, God does that. And you pass the exam, and this person, like, doesn't have it after all. And your car actually makes it. And then you just go on with life. And then something else happens. And all of a sudden, you're freaking out all over again. We've completely forgotten what God has already done in our lives. Why does that happen? Uh, just, a, just a quick note. In the text, we, we saw the word Abram, and yet often we know them as Abraham. Abram, Abraham, Sarai, Sarah, they're the same person. And we're going to, if you're wondering, like, wh- why? Why do they have different names in different parts of Scripture? We're going to find out why in just a little bit. But uh, Sarah, immediately, chapter 16, she doubts the promises of God. But what I want to stop and consider is that her doubts really are not that unreasonable. They're really not. So there's a couple factors that really play into how she behaves, how she thinks that are culturally relevant for her and for us as we think about this. The first thing is that Sarah was well into her 70s. We don't have a lot of 70-year-olds here. But if you're 70, you're probably not thinking about having your own kids. You're probably thinking about having grandkids. And the thought of having your own kid would be like, no, I don't want to carry that. That would be dangerous. Why on earth would I do that? I'm, I'm old. So maybe, you know, we need to adopt somebody. And God's like, no, 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 it's going to come through, it's going to come through you. You're going to have this offspring. Now, listen, we're not, ex- we're not ex- like excusing Sarah's lack of faith. That's not what we're doing. But we're just recognizing that it's reasonable for her to say, I'm in my 70s. Abram's in his 80s. Yeah, right. We're going to have a kid. And then she does this thing. And actually, when you stop to think, at it, think about it, what she does is kind of, kind of a selfless act, isn't it? Like, it doesn't benefit for her. It's not naturally good for her. I mean, what I mean by that is Abraham and Sarah had been married for a long time. They had a happy marriage. They had been through thick and thin together. They loved each other. It's not that she obviously wanted her husband to go off and sleep with another lady. That's not what she wanted. But she wanted an heir for her husband. So she decides to do something that all of us, at some point in time, have decided to do in our lives. We just... Help God out a little bit. We cut corners a little bit. And even though it's not even appealing to her, she makes the sacrifice. Now, that doesn't, it's not an excuse for her, not at all. But maybe we can understand her motives are at least somewhat good. Like she's not going against anybody. She didn't try to undercut anyone. She's not trying to throw someone under the bus for her own advancement. She's actually making a sacrifice for the greater good. She's just saying, Lord, the Lord made this promise. I'm just going to help a little bit. I'm just going to help a little bit. God, God, you know, God needs me on his team. So I'm going to help the Lord. Like, we do that. We do that all the time. I'm going to help the Lord a lot out. And we wouldn't say that out loud because it would sound a little ridiculous. But, but we do it. We do it in the way we make decisions, in the way we act. After all, you know, it's, doesn't God want me to have a spouse And so, you know, I'm just going to sleep with them now to kind of seal the deal and bring them in, even though we're not married yet. And and I'm just going to help God out a little bit. God doesn't want me to be in poverty. So, you know, I'll just lie on my taxes. I'll cut corners. I'll help them out a little bit. My candidate is obviously God's choice for this office. So, you know what? Uh, I'll just just spread some lies about the other guy. I'll just help God out a little bit. You tell the Lord, you know what, I'm going to help you because you just need my help to get this done. Without me, she would say, you know, I'm in my 70s. 
God, you're not going to be able to do this. So part of what we have to understand is, is Sarah, when she uses Hagar in this kind of way as a surrogate, it wasn't uncommon. Like, we look at it, and it's awful. It's awful for Hagar. It's awful now. It was awful back then. The Lord doesn't dismiss it. The Lord doesn't want anything to do with it. But culturally, it was actually a, a, a well-established practice. This wasn't something new. And it's fascinating because archaeologists have uncovered tablets that talk about the laws in that time. They're called the Newsy tablets. Not like Santa Fe, the Newsies, not that kind of Newsies, N-U-Z-I, the Newsy tablets. And there should be a picture of them. Here's one of them. And in one of these Newsy tablets, there's this account of a law. I'm going to mess up these names, but this is, the, this is what it says. If Gilamanu bears children, Shenema shall not take another wife. But if Gilamanu fails to bear children, Gilamanu shall get for Shenema a woman from the Lulu country, in other words, a slave girl, a concubine. In that case, Gilamanu herself will have authority over the offspring. This was literally the law of the land for her at that point in time. So she's not just making this up out of thin air, not at all. She's not like plotting the affair because she just wants a kid. It was actually something that their culture did. Now, this isn't to excuse her behavior, right? The Lord doesn't excuse her behavior. But I just want you to understand the mindset that she's in at this point in time because how she made decisions is often how we make decisions as well. To her, it completely made sense. When she talked with her best friend and she said, hey, this is what I'm thinking about, it probably made complete sense to her best friend as well because, listen, our sin always makes sense to us. It almost always makes sense to our best friends as well. But listen, it was still wrong. Even though, even though we can understand where she was coming from. But this wasn't God's way. This wasn't what God wanted for her. So what Sarah does is she makes the offer to Abram without any consideration of Hagar. And we're just told that Abraham listens to the voice of Sarah. Now listen, once you see this, you can't unsee this. Because this whole thing just is like an echo of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Right, Eve and Adam, and there's this fruit, and Eve goes and takes the fruit and offers it to Adam, and there's Sarai and Hagar, and Sarah takes Hagar to Abram, and Abram just kind of goes along with it. It's just like this echo. Abraham listens to Sarah the way that Adam listened to Eve, and it's like, come on, Abram, like we're not going to give you a pass on this. Just because it was your wife's idea doesn't make it a good one. Right? How could you be so dumb Abraham like guys listen listen this temptation whether real or imagined is always a trap it's always a trap so if your wife is like hey which of my friends do you think is the prettiest danger 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 Will Robinson stay away from it it's a trap the answer is always dear you are the most radiant person in the whole wide world Sarah was dealing with a temptation just like Abraham was. See, Sarah's temptation was a little different because she had this still small voice inside of her, this insecurity. I said, you, you're not enough. You don't have what it takes. There's something wrong with you. There's something broken with you. And you've got to take things into your own hands. And so she did that. She did that. Abraham takes Hagar as a wife. He lays with her. It works. Hagar's pregnant. And from that point on, things just kept getting worse and worse and worse and uglier and uglier. 
Because now Hagar's pregnant. She's strutting her stuff around Sarah. Sarah couldn't get pregnant. Now, we've not had to walk through this particular kind of trial and pain, but we've walked alongside people that have tried to conceive and can't, and it's deeply painful, especially when there's someone nearby that like their friends are getting pregnant, and now you see babies, and it's just really, really hard for them. And so what we start to see is this building animosity between Sarah and between Hagar. Hagar's upset that she had to get slaved out. Now she's pregnant. So now she has contempt for Sarah, and she walks around like she owns the place. She looks down on Sarah, who can't get pregnant. Sarah's upset. And so Sarah does something that we would all do. And this isn't a woman thing. Guys, we do this too. Sarah goes to Abram and says, this is all your fault, Abram. Because in marriage, when something ever goes bad, it's never your fault. It's always the other person's fault, right? Isn't that how it goes? So they they go, she blames Abraham. And you just picture Abraham sitting there scratching his head going, wait, 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 hold on. This was your idea in the first place, Sarah. You asked me to do this. And it was successful. And now there's this kid in the picture. And she comes in and she goes, no, but it's all your fault. You asked me to do it. Well, you shouldn't have listened to me. So she blames Abraham for all the troubles. Abraham returns the blame back and says, listen, Sarah, this is your servant. You do with Hagar whatever it is you want to do. You deal with it. You bought her. You deal with it. And so this whole thing ends in this scene with Sarah mistreating Hagar and Hagar having to run off and run away and hide. She gets really, really far away before the Lord finally intervenes and says, wait, 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 Hagar, Hagar, hold on. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. Go back, to, go back home. Be, be faithful to your, to your mistress. I'm going to care for you. But I just want you to stop, and I want you to think about the level of mess that happened with all of this. Like, it's crazy drama. Sarah took matters into her own hands. She's messing with the way of the Lord, the timing of the Lord, the provisions of the Lord. It's all blowing up in their face, and this glorious days of our lives couldn't make this up soap opera, Jerry Springer-level event. That's what was unfolding here. Now, the thing is this. You and I, we have things that are, we think are small disobediences that in the end leave a big old mess. Sin is always like a sneeze. It feels good at the time, but in the end, it leaves a mess. And that's what happened. That's what happened. Fear for Sarah, Sarah, won over faith. I don't know if I can really trust God, and so I'm going to take things in my own hands. I'm cutting corners, and every single time, listen to me, every single time, that ends poorly in our lives. And I can sit down with a lot of you and we could tell stories of how we've seen that happen and play out in our lives. And yet we come up against another challenge and there it is all over again. We're in the same situation. Well, listen, this child was born to Hagar. The Lord comes to her and says, listen, come back. I'm going to take care of you. And she bears the son for Abraham and his name is Ishmael. You might recognize the name Ishmael. It's very culturally relevant because Ishmael was the forefather of Adron and Adron was the forefather of Muhammad. And you're like, wait, that Muhammad? Yeah, that Muhammad. 
that was the birthplace of Islam. And Muslims would believe that they have the proper lineage for what was promised because what was the promise to Abraham was through your offspring, a great nation's going to come, but it just wasn't through that son, it was through another son. And listen, one small act of disobedience, of faithlessness, of disbelief, of taking things into our own hands and cutting corners, that's why we watch the news today and there's a war in the Middle East. And as of Thursday, there were 5,000 people that have died and a lot more are going to die. And many of you, some of you have exchanged fire in the Middle East because of this kind of conflict. Almost all of us probably know someone who's lost their lives because of this conflict that has taken place. And it all started because Sarah said, I'm just going to help God along a little bit. And it happened because Abraham was so, because he was just being a dumb man. And he didn't stand up for what was right either. He went along with his wife. And, and so we have to like look at this story and how this played out and ask the question, well, how, how then does God commend them for their faithfulness? How are they in the hall of faith? And the answer is not in what they do. The answer is in what God does next. I just want to read some excerpts of the next chapter, chapter 17 in Genesis. This is what happens immediately after this Jerry Springer mess unfolds. This is what God does. When Abram was 99 years old, so some time has passed, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Well, he wasn't. God calls him to that. He says, then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And then listen to what happens. Abraham fell face down. He worshipped. Not initially, but finally, he worshipped. His guitar was out of tune. He had to bring it back into tune. And God says to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. What was God's response to their mess up? He renews the promise. And God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. We're going to get to that in a second. But then he goes on to Sarah in verse 15 of chapter 17. God also said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. And I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. And I will bless her that she will be the mother of nations. And kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, <laughs> Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him, and I will make him fruitful and will increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant... I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. So they engage in sin. They break God's word. They break his promises. They go against them. And what's God's response? 
He takes them, he makes them new, he renews the promise that they had broken. And then this is what he does. He puts a timetable on it. He says, listen, okay, so you don't believe me. Let me tell you how this is going to go down exactly. A year from now, I'm going to make you into a great people. I'm going to do it. One, put it on your calendar because it's coming. Abraham, you're going to have this kid from Sarah and not from Hagar. They're unfaithful. God's response is faithfulness. And he says, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him Isaac, which means he laughs. He laughs. The name that he gives is literally God laughing in response for their inability to trust him. He says, what are you doing? You know who I am. I've walked amongst you in the animals. When I say something is going to happen, Abraham, it's going to happen. And on the very day they looked at Isaac, they were reminded that they had questioned God, and God laughs at them. He says, okay, you guys want to see what I'm going to do? Let me show you. When I make a promise, you might doubt me, but I'm just going to smile. I'm just going to laugh. I'm going to fulfill my promise, and you're going to see that I'm God, not just based off of what I say, but based off of what I do. He never makes a promise he's not going to keep. And listen, you and I cannot say the same, but our God does. Here's the key. Here's the key. When God finally steps in, he vindicates Abraham and Sarah, their response was this, that they faithfully obeyed and they worshiped. They tuned their guitar. They, 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 they righted themselves. Finally, not initially, because God had intervened. And they're totally wretched. They're sinful. They go their own way. But the Lord's response is what? It's mercy. It's mercy. I will put the faith in you. I will do this work, God says. And then when you're faithful for it, I'm going to commend you for your faith. <laughs> that's, the, that's the heart of God. I want to put that in you. That's what happens in, in Hebrews chapter 11. He credits faith to them. God gives them a new identity. He gives them something new. See, oftentimes we think, well, I'm just, I'm just broken. I'm just used. I've screwed up too many times in the past. There's no way God can use me. And God says, no, wait, wait, wait. When you accept Christ, you become a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. We don't look at people that way anymore. We look at the identity that God says over us. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, if you're going to be about the kingdom of God, it's going to come when you're born again. You're going to get a new kind of identity. Don't define yourself by that way anymore. Walk in the identity that I give you. That's what God does for us every single day. And listen, beloved, you want to walk in the path of who you used to be, and God says, look, I've made you new. I've paid for your sin with the, with the death of my son. And I love you, and that's not who you are anymore. Walk in that. Tune your strings to that. That's what God does for us. He gives us that ability to even walk in faithfulness, to be able to trust him. So we learn two things from this passage. One is very practical and the other one is theological. So I wrap it up here. The first thing is that we don't take matters into your own hands. Don't do it. God's timing is perfect. Don't cut corners. Even when you're enduring hardships as you wait for him, God says strength will come as we wait upon the Lord. He will renew your strength. You will mount up on wings like eagle. You will walk and not grow weary. You run and you won't be faint. God doesn't grow weary. He will strengthen you. His promises are perfect. And listen, when we try to cut corners to help him out, even when we're not even thinking that, we end up doing that, we cause so much harm in our lives. I want you to remember Sarah's circumstances. Think about this. She did everything she did out of a good motivation, didn't she? 
She did what her culture said was morally acceptable and right. She did it because she thought it was the best thing for her family, because she thought it was the best thing for Abraham. She did it for all of these reasons. She did everything she did because she thought it was normal. But listen, God's word says, don't just do what's normal. Don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world. Even that's what everybody else does. Don't, don't do that. Be countercultural because you've got to change the way you think. Don't go by who you used to be. Go by who I made you to be. You've got to renew your mind and, and, and operate with the identity that I gave you, the spirit of God that I put inside you. Let that be the wisdom that I give you. And you might want to say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm 16, you know, and all my friends are, are, are dating and they're all hooking up and they're fooling around. Don't short circuit what God has for you. Did you know he wants you to have the most robust romantic experience in your relationship within a marriage? Do you know that he wants you to have red hot monogamy in your sexual life? That's what he wants for you. He's not trying to keep something good from you. He wants that for you. Don't, don't sidestep that. God's design for our sexuality is between one man and one woman and the covenant of a New Testament marriage. Don't sidestep that. Wait on him. He's not trying to ruin your fun. And that plays out in multiple, multiple areas. Let his wisdom guide you. It's so hard. It's so hard when you're in the middle of those pressures to learn to actually trust him. But that's what he commends them for. The second truth is theological. It's this. This is so amazing. Listen, guys. When we fail, God's promises remain firm. Even when we fail, his promises remain firm. He is gracious. He's the king even when we falter. And we don't obey by our own bootstraps. We obey because of the faithfulness that he lets us walk in. Now, listen. Listen. Some of you are going through some intense battles of faith right now. There's some circumstance, there's some relationship, there's some challenge. Maybe you're even like really struggling just to make sense of what faith means and, and, and figuring it all out. And I don't know what I believe about all of this. And you say, you know what, my faith is like not here. My faith is, is, is this much. And I feel like it's barely hanging on. Maybe for you this morning, the prayer needs to be, God, give me the faith to walk through this and persevere even when I have this much faith. And the glorious thing about Jesus, he says that God responds to mustard seed size faith. Can't tell you the number of times I've gone through the darkness, what the church fathers call the dark night of the soul. And I say, God, I don't have this much faith. I just don't have it. I have this much faith. God says, I can deal with that. In that space where you have this much faith, just say, God, would you give me faith? Help me to walk in this. God, Give me that gift. I know it comes from you. Speak your promises over me. Empower me. Help me to act on that accordingly. God, that's what I need. That's what I need to go through this. Maybe that needs to be your prayer this morning. Don't cut corners. God is always faithful even when we fail. Let me pray for you. And then we're going to respond in worship. God, thanks for your faithfulness to Abraham and Sarah. God, we're reminded that this promise you made to Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations, even more that your presence and your blessing would be to spread to the people of all the earth. Like, we're a part of that. God, you made a promise in Genesis 12, and you're still in the business of keeping that today. God, for those times when we're tempted to, like, cut corners, where I'm tempted to cut corners, Lord, would you just arrest our hearts with the story of Abraham and Sarah? 
God, would you empower me to walk with faith? And for these friends here in this room, Lord, would you do that same thing, God? Would you grow our faith in you through these studies? And Lord, for all of those who are just like oppressed by the mistakes of their past, it just kind of lingers and sticks with them. God, would you declare your love and your faithfulness over them even when we've been broken, God, you deal with that. Do you speak your renewal and hope and love in Christ and let them experience that faith that you've granted? Lord, just as we respond in worship, God, would we send, be sent out from this place just reminded of your faithfulness. We praise you, we worship you, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.